while I personally and scholars at risk recognize and would stand with professors that they have a very strong academic freedom right, that's not the end of the conversation. This is Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm Chris Martin. My guest today is Robert Quinn. Rob is the executive director of Scholars at Risk Network, which helps protect and relocate members of higher education communities if their freedom and security are threatened in their home country. Since its founding in 2000, Scholars at Risk has assisted over a thousand scholars through temporary research and teaching visits. Hi, Rob. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? Uh, Great. Really excited to have a chance to chat with you and the heterodox audience. Well, we're glad to have you here. So you are executive director of Scholars at Risk, and you've been doing that for quite a few years now. Is that right? I have, yeah. We're in our um, 18th, going into our 19th year, uh, and I've been there since the beginning. And your core activity is protection and advocacy work of academics abroad. Can you talk a bit about that? Uh, So, yeah, Scholars at Risk, uh, or our full name is Scholars at Risk Network. We're a network of universities, colleges, research centers, and higher ed associations around the world who come together for the purpose of protecting persecuted intellectuals, uh, primarily facing physical threats or or coercive threats. Uh, And our core activity is to try to arrange temporary positions of sanctuary for them so that they can continue doing their work, and so we don't lose these important voices and their ideas. And what countries are you primarily working in right now? Well, over our history, we've seen over 4,000 requests for help. So that's 4,000 members of the academic community who self-identify as suffering one of these types of risks. And they come from over 100, or maybe even this point, over 110 countries. So on one level, it's truly a global problem. There is a sort of chronic problem of power clashing with those who are generating ideas and questions. Uh, But any given time, the acute comes out. There are crises in any given place. And at the moment, our crises places are are clearly sort of Turkey, uh, Venezuela, Syria, uh, and a number of other countries. And you're helping about 300 academics a year. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we have over 700 on our lists seeking help at the moment. So there's a clear mark right there that we we really need anybody who's listening connected to a higher education institution, uh, primarily in the U.S. right now, but really anywhere, uh, that we need you to join, get involved. So you can go to our website and see if your institution is already a member. If they are, you can help us try to find a good fit for your campus, a scholar who you might be able to host. And if they're not, we really need you to get involved. But yeah, so... 700 currently seeking help, new applications still coming in. And yes, at the moment, the network is able to help three to 350 scholars a year, including over 100 placements each year. That's quite impressive, that number. Are there a few universities in America that are taking most of them, or is it spread out? No, it's very spread out. Um, and I agree with you. It is, it's a good number, but obviously compared to the need, uh, it's an insufficient number. But I think on the plus side, Uh, And it's really one of the things I say, the magic of this project is we don't have a roster of jobs to give out. It only works because there are people at institutions who are willing to receive our emails, look at the case list and say, hey, maybe we can help that person. Maybe our campus can benefit from having that person. So to me, it's not just so much the number, but it's the spirit and the willingness that that number represents uh, that really makes it really powerful. Um, 
some universities host every year. Uh, some might be able to host more than one at a time. But by and large, more it's one at a time. Maybe they'll have one for a year or two, and then that person will leave, and then there'll be a small gap, and then they'll host somebody else. That's absolutely fine. We understand that it's going to be different at every different kind of institution. And I would estimate you're getting a lot of cases from Turkey right now. Can you talk a bit about the situation there? So the situation in Turkey for the country itself, and then especially for higher education, really is quite dire. You're absolutely right. It's probably, in terms of the sheer volume, the single largest source uh, since I've been doing this now in almost two decades. Um, it began two or two and a half years ago when a group of scholars of about a thousand signed a public petition urging the government to reassess its policies uh, in the southeast of the country with regard to the Kurdish region. Uh, they were immediately branded as traitors, as terrorists, uh, and a purge and persecution of the over 1,000 growing to almost 2,000 signatories uh, began. So that was bad enough. Uh, and then with the attempted coup uh, in July of that year, um, it expanded to a really countrywide purge of judges and lawyers uh, and certainly the higher education sector. So now we have over 7,000 scholars uh, who have been put under investigation, arrested, lost their positions. Most of them who are facing prosecution have had their passports confiscated. And beyond that, their family members have had their passports confiscated. So they are, they are prisoners in their own countries, not allowed to work in their disciplines. And it's having devastating effect on their lives and on higher education. And what makes it doubly sad is for the two decades before that, Turkey was on the cutting edge, the leading wave of promoting international higher education. Turkey was a place where we went to host workshops about academic freedom so we could bring people from all around the region to talk about it there. And unfortunately, now it's one of the biggest source countries. And in addition to that work abroad with scholars from places like Turkey, you also have been involved with debates in America about freedom of speech and how we should go beyond talking about freedom and also talk about responsibility and values. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So we, um, we have three areas to our work. And what we've already been talking about, our core work is what we call our protection work. That's individual casework. Uh, and that includes the relocation work. It also just helps people where they are, uh, maybe giving family support or legal support to people who are imprisoned and so forth. But a different track of our work is what we call research and learning or our values promotion work which is how do we get the broader public uh, and leaders to understand what academic freedom is and, and why it matters. Uh, and so while we don't put most of our energy into domestic U.S. campus incidents, we have been observing what's been going on over the last five or 10 years in the U.S. And we really think our international uh, perspective using the, the experience we have of the 4,000 cases that we've seen has something to offer there. So we've been developing curricula, workshops. We have a MOOC on uh, academic freedom. It's called Dangerous Questions, uh, Why Academic Freedom Matters. Who's hosting the MOOC? Uh, it's hosted on the FutureLearn platform. So we ran it as a, as a test in June. We had over 1,000 uh, participants from over, I think it was 90 countries. Uh, the comments were really amazing uh, because there's a real tendency, and I think this is one of the big problems in getting people to understand academic freedom and why it matters, is the real tendency to see this in, through a hyper-local lens, that this is just about our domestic politics. And where our work is, is no, if you go to the layer underneath that, uh, 
This is about what are the rules for sharing and testing ideas in society. How do we have a space where we can agree that you don't win by having the most force, that you don't win by being able to shout down or intimidate or imprison the people who have different ideas? So the MOOC was really interesting to see people from different uh, religious backgrounds, national backgrounds, educational institutions, countries, wrestle with case examples uh, and to see how they related that to incidents from their own countries. Who were the instructors on the MOOC? Uh, so I was one of them, and then uh, a Turkish scholar who is part of our network uh, was the other lead instructor, Olga Hundler. She's fantastic. She's based in Germany. The MOOC was anchored in Norway, so it was a truly uh, a global effort in putting it together. It's part of an EU-funded project called Academic Refuge. Uh, but we'll be running it again in October, and we're really eager, especially to see more U.S. campuses uh, get involved. We're playing with organizing special um, cohorts. So if there is a campus where there was an incident and people feel like the discourse on their campus got totally polarized and they don't know how to connect again, they don't know how to have a conversation without it turning negative, um, we'd love to see them get in touch. Maybe we could organize a cohort where they could have people do the MOOC together uh, and share their comments in this sort of space. Uh, and we think the structure of the content in the MOOC uh, is really the key. I mean, we're not really looking at a right wrong for any given incident. The issue is how do we analyze these incidents and do we share the common goal of are we trying to get to the place where we're actually talking to each other apples to apples and actually listening to what people are trying to say uh, rather than particular buzzwords that make it hard to get to meaning. Now, in the U.S., one problem we have is there are a few people on the speaking circuit who are just out to provoke. They're mainly trolls. And from a First Amendment point of view, they do have the right to speak. But many academics don't see any value in having them come to their university. What's your position on how to deal with people like that? Uh, so, you know, there's a two different dimensions to what you just asked that I think are really important. So number one is you use the word right to speak. Um, and in the U.S. cases in particular, you know, we have a wonderfully rich tradition of the First Amendment right of free speech, right? And we also have a parallel and related really rich tradition evolved through the AAUP, AAUP of academic freedom and what it is. Um but I think we're in a little bit of a trap because of those two traditions. We tend to use the right discourse as a trump card uh, and, and as a way of shutting down the analysis of an incident. So while I personally and scholars at risk recognize and would stand with professors that they have a very strong academic freedom right to say and do things that might be controversial or upset people, um, that's not the end of the conversation. And in our MOOC and in our workshops, we pointed that there are other values of higher education space, including equitable access and social responsibility and accountability to society. And how do we balance the academic freedom dimension with those in responsible ways so we can get to what is our ultimate goal, pursuit of truth, better understanding, and actual meaningful uh, dialogue. So, so in the U.S. incidents, that's why I do think our MOOC and our workshop curriculum could be helpful. We see that a little bit as missing. Um, then for the other side of your point is when you have someone who is known going to be a controversial speaker, how do campuses deal with that? We talk about that a little bit in the MOOC, and it's really, I think the emphasis has to be on good process. 
and ideally, an institution would have a very proactive, pro-values culture that they've created that takes time, right? So the, the third content unit in our values workshops, in our MOOC and in our publications is how do you proactively develop an understanding of what your institution's values are? And then what processes do you put in place to decide when and how to use this limited space and time that you have on campus. Uh, so if we wanted to get into it, I'd have to know, was it the university president or the board of trustees that invited someone? Was it a student group that invited someone? Uh, in some of the incidents on the U.S. campuses recently, it was actually neither. It was the individual rented a space and wanted to speak on the campus and so forth. So I think it's important that we dig into those. But at the end of the day, I think it's how universities communicate how they assess and make decisions and analyze these situations that matter most to their communities. You're touching on topics in ethics and political philosophy here. When you taught the MOOC, did you draw readings from classical political philosophy or ethics? I probably can't claim that in a specific way, no. I'm sure that we're all influenced by uh, the philosophy and, and ethics that we come across in our lives. And and I think when one sits in a chair like I do, which is our program is specifically set up in a place that prioritizes the individual who has been targeted, um, you can't help but have a moral ethics dimension uh, to how you go about your work, right? Um, but I think also uh, deeply underneath this is what is one's uh, both practical, but also, I suppose, philosophical view of what is the university, uh, what is higher education, what is its purpose. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that you know, our program fully adopts a view that higher education is not just for elites. It's not just for reinforcing an elite. Um, there has been a democratization of access to higher education, and that's a core uh, value. And once you're in that space, then we ne need to make sure that the, for lack of a better term, the rules of intellectual combat are fair and reflected of that diversity and, and getting the best knowledge out of that pool that we can. When you talk to academics around the world, do you feel like they approximately converge on one definition of what the university is for that helps you coordinate all of this work? Uh, you know, it's really interesting. The short answer is yes. Um, so it took me, I'm, I'm not an academic by training. I'm a lawyer by training, human rights law by, by choice. And so I came into this saying, how, how do I as a defender um, defend academic freedom, defend this space and these individuals in this space? And my next question was, well, why hasn't there been more effective defense? Right? I mean, universities have been around for hundreds, if not a couple of thousands of years, depending on your, your origin story, right? Um, and yet we constantly have pressures and attacks on either individuals or on entire departments or on entire uh, systems. Uh, and I think that the answer to that really is because there's this tension over what is the university supposed to, to do, right? Uh, and our program comes very firmly down on the fact that it's about getting as many individuals as possible uh, educated, as many individuals in, uh, possible engaged in uh, exercising their own right to contribute to whatever the meaningful issues of their day are, uh, however they want to. So, so I think that essence is the core of the project. When we go around the world, and we did, we spent about 10 years developing uh, the precursor projects to our 
workshop curriculum and to the MOOC curriculum and so forth. And it started with a series of workshops. Uh, we would go, we went to Amman uh, and we brought people from 20 neighboring countries in the Arab world. We went to uh, Ethiopia and we brought people from 20 different countries around uh, Northern Africa. We brought, we went to South Africa and brought people from Southern Africa and we did them in uh, Eastern Europe and so forth. And it always started out the same. The first day, people always said, you don't understand, it's different in my country. Always. Everybody said it, right? Uh, and the first few times we did the workshops, we, we took us a while to learn. So then we learned. We said the first day was all testimony. Everybody would get 15 minutes to explain the threats to academic freedom in their country. And by the end of the day, it was impossible to say it's different in your country. The manifestations were different, but the fundamental dynamics were the same. Uh, and just to make the point super clear, we'd always bring somebody from the other side of the world. So when we did the workshop in Amman, we brought somebody from Bangladesh. And the methods that the government in Bangladesh were using were exactly the same as the methods as the governments in the, in the Gulf states were using. And so, so the it's different in my country evaporated. And people could see that all around the world, there are higher education communities. And within those communities, there are already people who hold these values that want academic freedom, that want the autonomy to pursue truth without being told you can't publish that because it embarrasses so-and-so and so forth and so on. And so our project has no conversion dimension to it at all. Uh, our philosophy is that these, the people who share these values already exist. How do we link them up? How do we support them? How do we advertise what they're trying to do, give them a voice? Uh, and so in that sense, yes, I do think there is within the higher education sector a very, very um, firm rooting that academic freedom, the ability to pursue knowledge where it goes, is at its at its core. Now, I would say, just and I'll, I'll pause right after this, but among states, that's not at all accepted, right? And we have a wide range of state authority and non-state authority that would very, very, very much like to constrain the vision of the university almost always for purposes of retaining the power structure that they benefit from. It sounds like you're saying there's a democratic and even egalitarian ethos underneath this, where along the lines of what Amartya Sain says, university professors absorb the idea that democracy is not just about providing votes and measuring the prosperity of a nation is not just about measuring per capita GDP, but trying to measure whether governments are providing education and providing opportunities for education to even those without resources. Is that something, is that an underlying ethos there as well among these professors? Well, you know, I can say for myself, personally, you know, I come from the human rights lens. And so if you, if you anchor yourself in the international human rights movement and the treaties that have been adopted by most countries on earth, then there's no question that that the right to education is one of the core principles. It's there. Uh, we would argue that academic freedom is also anchored there, although not the explicit term. Um, so that's not me projecting that. That's already there in the framework. So any objection to that is an objection to the international human rights framework, and, and that's a separate uh, conversation, right? So um, I also, I wouldn't say democratic per se, because that implies that we have a position on particular governance systems and so forth and so on. I think what we would say, and I think accurate within the UN system, is democratically legitimate. Um, so there can be any range of different structures of governance 
but there is a test as to whether it has any democratically legitimate anchoring to it. And I think that that word legitimate is really the essence of why scholars and students and university communities get attacked, because when they are willing to stand at the intersection of truth and power and are willing to ask the questions that question power, they're really eroding the legitimacy of states that aren't based on truth uh, or other structures that aren't based on truth. So, so I think that's at the, the essence of it. But again, I, I got to bring it back to the practical. I don't get there from a philosophical point of view. I get there from looking at 4,000 scholars who have come to us and seeing the patterns of what has happened to them and seeing the similarities in what triggered the persecution, the methods that have been used against them and the consequences for persisting. Now, this is a difficult question, but are you hopeful? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist at this point in history? Uh, you know, I think, um, well, the short answer is I'm extremely optimistic. Um, you know, notwithstanding that, I'm not naive, right? So I think if you take the long lens of history, we have never lived a time where more people have access to higher education. Uh, more people are getting the capacity to be critical thinkers. Uh, that we have tools that allow almost any individual to communicate with almost any individual. They're not fully distributed, but we're getting there. Um, so the structural capacity of an ill-meaning uh, elite to silence dissent and uh, prevent the spread of knowledge, uh, that's historically up against the wall, right? Now, of course, there's always pushback, and we're beginning to see very frightening versions of uh, technological uh, distortions of knowledge, uh, and I think we need to be on guard for that, which is precisely why the higher education sector to me is so important, because the issues are so complicated, and the expertise required to be able to assess these dynamics and these risks we must have free universities where people can can develop that expertise and then share it, you know? Um, and I'm also optimistic because, as again, I said, I'm, I'm not an academic by training. And when we started this project, uh, I was brought out to the University of Chicago. We were there for three years. We're now at New York University and very grateful to have such a wonderful home here. But when I first went out to University of Chicago, there was a pretty typical sort of senior graduate student faculty member workshop uh, and I just sat on the side of the room, and I had never been in one of those before. And it became so amazingly abstract within a few seconds. Uh, and then it kept going for an hour. But over the course of the hour, and I admit my, my beginning was, what a waste of time. Let's get down to action, right? But by the end of the hour, I, I began to realize that there's two sides to the coin. And on the one side, academics is an extremely selfish exercise. I want to spend a lot of time working on what I want to work on because I think it's interesting. But the other side of that coin is an incredibly generous, I'm going to share my findings with the world uh, and I'm not going to get paid for it. And, and, and somebody else will build on my findings and come up with their great, amazing idea. So I think that that essence of collective that's in the academic pursuit, I think that should make everybody optimistic as long as we keep that kernel in there. I appreciate having you on the show. Before we wrap up, once again, the way to get involved with Scholars at Risk is to go to your website and look at how your university can be involved with this project. Is that correct? 
yeah, just Google Scholars at Risk or Scholars at Risk NYU. You'll find us. Uh, send me an email. Send our staff an email. Uh, but we really, um, you know, our goal is to link up uh, everybody who cares about these values uh, and then see what we can do together to both fly the flag and to help as many individuals as possible. Well, thanks for being on the show. Terrific. Thank you, Chris. You can find out more about Scholars at Risk at scholarsatrisk.com and on Twitter at Scholars at Risk. You can also find many other interviews with Rob on the YouTube channel for the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs at youtube.com slash Carnegie Council. My upcoming guests on Half Hour of Heterodoxy include the authors of two books coming out in September, The Coddling of the American Mind by John Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, which comes out on September 4th, and How Fascism Works by Jason Stanley, which comes out on September 11th. I'll also have an interview with David Ashkenazi from the Knight Foundation and Jeff Jones of Gallup about their recent research on students' attitudes towards First Amendment freedoms. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find out about the show. And if you're interested in similar podcasts, you may enjoy Clear and Present Danger, a history of free speech, hosted by Jacob Mashangama, and Two Psychologists, Four Beers, hosted by Yoel Inbar and Michael Inslicht. As always, this podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter, and on the web at heterodoxacademy.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>